Welcome to the Project Update Podcast. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing really good, Joe. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. We have our first bit of follow-up for the new show, which is yeah. exciting because we get to have follow-up. And if for no other reason, it means that people listened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So listener Kirk reached out to you and with feedback about my ergonomic situation and recommended something that's called the ProPoint Mouse and Presenter. And it seems to be kind of a a mouse alternative where you can kind of use it as a mouse, but also as like a positional object when you're not working on a surface. Um, I have looked at this in the past and other things like it. And while it's really cool, it's definitely not for me. Um, I have really hard times dealing with small things. So that's one of the reasons I use the trackpads and the the trackball mouse and things like that. As long as I can keep my hand relatively open, I do much better. But gripping something small is like the worst nightmare for me. To the point where I even stopped reading physical books because just holding a book for as long as I prefer to read is enough to cause a tremendous amount of pain. Just kind of a weird, we're all different RSI issues type things. And a good example of that is a Mike Hurley, who does a lot of podcasts I listen to, his RSI seems to be the exact opposite of mine, where he is really excited that they added mouse accessibility support to iOS so he doesn't have to use the touchscreen so much. And I'm like, where is my touchscreen Mac so I don't have to use this mouse so much? So yeah, it's just, you know, different injuries, different people. But yeah. uh, I'll, I'll post a link to that device in the show notes. And thanks to listener Kirk for the feedback. Well, with any luck, at some time coming up soon, you'll have an opportunity to actually try out one of these things. Yeah. Because uh, I went ahead and ordered one. Nice. Um, I want to play around with it. And they were having a sale this weekend. So it's quite a bit cheaper. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to give yours a shot. So if listeners have follow-up for us... Um, we haven't really talked about this beforehand, but we have a website called project-update.com and you can go to that website and there's a link to the contact page uh, or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at Radical App Dev. And what are you, Dave? I am at DesignDB. Okay. So yeah, I'll post those links in the show notes as well. So if you have any follow-up questions, comments, or just want to say hi, uh, just you know, contact us on Twitter or the website. So now that the official first follow-up uh, project update is done, why don't you give us a project update? So I got a lot of good code done. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm quite when? pleased with it. <laughs> what what time of what time of day did you do this code? I'm just curious. As a general rule of thumb, it's usually in the evenings. Uh, evenings into the wee hours of the morning. What day Just... is it, Dave? <laughs> I'm pretty sure today's Monday, but that's only because there's a little thing in the corner of my computer screen that says Monday. Just, just want to get uh, this on record. It is still Sunday for Dave. Yeah, so I woke up at about 10.30 last night. And uh, 
by about 11.30 was punching away on code and stopped at 9.30, 10 o'clock this morning. It's now 11 a.m. I'm, I'm a little tired, I'll, I'll yeah. admit. Yeah, it's uh, a combination of code-tired brain exhaustion with uh, a little too much caffeine in my system right now. But we'll we'll see how this works out. It, it'll be interesting to find out whether this is a situation where we just need to put off recording for a day because I've messed up my brain. Yeah, it's just kind of funny because we've joked about this happening for years and it, it's finally happened. <laughs> anyway, how's your project going? Uh, really good. So last week was doing a bunch of code. I had a demo to an Atlanta-based FileMaker user group for FM Perception, the okay. app that I do that's currently on the market. And while doing that, I also wanted to take a couple of minutes and kind of do a first public unveiling of FM Comparison, the new app. Hmm. And um, that went... Well, Ooh, uh, uh, yeah, no crashes or anything. I mean, at this point, that's still success. Um, it is kind of weird that, okay, if I demo FM perception, I'm spending 95% of the time in the app. Yeah. I'm, I'm showing people how to accomplish various things in the app. But a properly designed diff tool doesn't need that. You go, look, file, file, here's the differences. You can click on things and look at the differences. Ta-da! And it takes all of about 60 seconds. <laughs> and so I think in a lot of cases, what will end up happening when I'm demoing FM comparison is that I'll be spending a lot more time talking about process and workflow rather than the app itself. Mm, yeah. And part of this is because traditionally FileMaker developers have not used diff tools. Um, the FileMaker file format is not in and of itself diffable. Mm -hmm. And most of the tools that could do it were very slow. Um, or there was the diff tool that I have in FM Perception, which is way too detail-oriented, creates a lot of, of noise in the data that you're looking at. It's flagging all valid changes, but not in an exceptionally useful manner. Yeah. Um, there's also another FileMaker-based diff tool on the market that works off of the existing XML not the new XML, um, but it's an online-based thing. So you have mm -hmm. to upload your DDR to their system to do it. They've got a very slick-looking tool. It's very nice, but I know from talking to my customers that everybody gets really twitchy with sending a DDR to an online service or to third parties. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we're talking about effectively the entire code for your system. And that has a tendency to be sensitive, yeah. either for uh, secret business logic or because there are elements within that thing that deal with security levels and access privileges and things like that. 
that is only going to get worse with the new XML because eventually on FileMaker's roadmap is the ability to take that XML and turn it back into a system. Mm, yeah. And as soon as you can do that, if I send you my XML, you have the system. You got the whole thing. Um, they're encrypting passwords and things like that. So even if I could turn XML back into a system, I can't necessarily get into it. But I do physically have a copy of the system at that point. And it's I just, know that and, that kind of stuff makes people very twitchy. I assume that would be an empty system, not full of data. Uh, actually, oh, no. <laughs> the new XML contains support for data. Hmm. Um, and it's neat because, it, again, on the roadmap is the ability to take the XML and, like, pare it down to just the XML for a section of a system. Okay. And then merge that into your live system in FileMaker. Oh, cool. But if you wanted to do a thing that was like, oh, let me do zip code lookups. Well, it could also include a complete zip code database. All the data. So you just blink and it's in your system. Functionality and content. Which I think is, is positioned to completely change the way we as developers make systems. Yeah, definitely. It makes boilerplate code much more useful and, and things like that. So, but this kind of concern has me um, pleased with the ability for FM comparison to do all of this work on a local machine. Mm -hmm. I neither need nor want, as a general rule of thumb, a copy of your XML. There'll be conversations about that with people once we start bumping into bugs. And because of the complexity of the system, in a lot of cases, I need to get that XML to be able to tell what's going wrong. But we'll, you know, burn that bridge when we come to it. You should start uh, making very Apple-like slides in Keynote when you're presenting FM comparison of like, you know, on-device processing and mm -hmm. all of your data stays on device. And, you know, just kind of like oh, yeah. make, a, make a parody. It doesn't have to be a parody. I'm actually going to do it because that is one of the selling points of the application is that it doesn't require online processing. I just can't wait till we can, till we, you get this project far enough along that you can start getting interested in machine learning and what machine learning can add to the diff engine there or to been, FM perception. There have been conversations on that kind of topic. Mm -hmm. um, th these types of data sets seem perfect for that type of like Every database has these things and then can be wildly different in these other ways. And what, mm -hmm. like, I wouldn't even know what you could find out from that, but it could be an interesting weekend project to train some machine learning on a bunch of DDRs and see what it comes up with. <laughs> so, what kind of new, new, what new questions can you ask that you couldn't ask before? If nothing else, we may end up with one of those really amusing things where somebody trains with a data set, feeds it 16 characters, and gets back a, a novel. Well, particularly, In this case, you would get back a database with functionality and reports. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by what it would look like. Yeah, if we can feed in a bunch of like, the new XML with data in it, like a, a, a here's a database or here's a feature, now make us other things that are like this. And just like... That could be really fun. Yeah. But so because of all of this, I'm 
starting to realize that the demos for FM comparison are going to be very different because a lot of it at the beginning is going to end up being educational. There's a relatively small percentage of the FileMaker developer population who knows and understands what diff tools are used for and what that advantage can bring to them. And so a lot of my work is going to end up being education mm -hmm. and not training or, or not demonstrating the software per se. So that'll be interesting. Um, <clears throat> it also kind of ran afoul of a tendency that I have, which is to lean too heavily on secrecy about new projects. Okay. Um, whether intentional or not, I have a tendency to follow a, a kind of Apple style of thing, which is you don't really talk about the thing until the thing is ready to go. You know, I, I don't want to talk about pre-release software because every once in a while that software doesn't end up making it out. Mm -hmm. um, I did it with FM Perception at the beginning where I really wanted a bunch of people to catch a demo that I was doing at a show and then didn't really tell people what the demo was about. I tried to like tease it and get people who were interested and I had a good audience but not a huge audience because most people had no idea what it was I was going to be talking about. And so I can, I can have a tendency to try to keep things too close to the vest for too long and not gain any advantage from starting to seed the ground before I'm really going to be in a position to talk about it. But you didn't entirely do that with FM Perception. Like you did show it at our local user group about a year before when it was still a project name, even before you had even decided to do the project. You had mm -hmm. been working in Swift and you know, reaching for the DDR XML was the easiest thing that you could think of as a side project, which is a ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> given what how complex it's become but yeah um but, but i didn't i mean even at that point i don't think we were recording our sessions and putting them online or anything like that there were no. six or seven people at that meeting and that was kind of the extent of it um but yeah it's just it's a tendency that i've noticed in myself to try and play things too close to the vest for too long mm-hmm and I'm trying to break out of that habit, but still yeah. not very good at it. Yeah, I've, I've been kind of weighing the same thing with the project I'm working on in iOS. Not because I think it's like a super winning million dollar idea or anything, but because I know I'm not good enough at this where I could mention my idea and another developer could do the entire project in two weeks and put it on the app store before I even have a chance to get the rest of the data model built. And I at least want to give myself a chance to get it out there. Yeah. And as soon as I get something out there, then I can't wait to start talking about, you know, additional features and what I'm working on without really keeping a lot hidden. Like uh, I think Marco Arment with Overcast does a really good job of 
developing very publicly, like talking about what he's working on and when and how long things take and stuff like that. And that's what I would rather be doing as soon as I can get the initial thing out the door. And, and this summer, that means that probably means just getting a beta, like a test flight thing out the door, not necessarily a published product because I won't be able to publish until September. Yeah. Well, in talking about timelines, I was also reminded the other day that it's now basically exactly four weeks from DevCon. Mm -hmm. So at DevCon, I'll definitely want to be talking about this, but I need to start start that process. Oh, so always just a little bit outside the comfort zone, which is a good place to be. Mm -hmm. But and you're not also a nerve-wracking place to be. It is not it's also not necessarily as much like there may be a secrecy aspect to it, but you're also not a self-promoter. And yeah. like so it just kind of like even if you are talking about it, I will have to retweet it or I will have to tell people <laughs> about it before you will. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Having lots of fun trying to add features into this thing, trying to get kind of the minimum viable product together um, went around in circles for a number of hours um, working on a feature that will in all likelihood not be there in the finished product hmm. it's primarily for me yeah um, i know stuff like that once i've compared the xml and found the things that are new and deleted and edited i need to be able to look in the system and confirm the validity of the data that got generated. And one of the things that I want to be able to do with that is look at the raw XML for these individual items. And so I can look and see if something that I thought should be marked as an edit isn't or is marked as an edit erroneously or something like that. The thing is, as a general rule of thumb, none of my users want to look at the XML. Mm -hmm. And... I was having a really tough time getting properly formatted, indented, you know, hierarchical XML displaying properly in a web page. Um, and so part of that has to do with the way that, like, I could get it displaying, it would display but all the white space at the beginning of lines would disappear because it's one of the things that mm -hmm. HTML as a general rule of thumb doesn't care about. It's like, no, 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 you hit space as many times as you want. I'm going to draw that however I feel like it. Um, and I was playing with that and it was like, okay, so what I need to do is actually take this stuff and turn my spaces into encoded non-breaking spaces and then insert line breaks at the end of each line. And then instead of just drawing the text to the screen, I now need it to treat this like HTML, but I don't really need to do that because of, I don't, because this is XML, which will do goofy things when you try and display it that way. So now I've got to actually encode the less thans and the greater thans and the ampersands and things like that so that I end up with a string that looks nothing like XML so that when I render it to the page, it actually makes XML. And after spending quite a few hours bouncing around in various versions of this, 
I eventually wrote a better Google query. <laughs> nice. And found the pre tag. Mm-hmm. P-R-E. Never seen it before. I'm really? sure it's pretty standard, but seems pretty useful. Yeah. And basically it's a, what, pre-formatted mm-hmm. or something like that. And so anything inside the pre-tag respects white space and line feeds. Well, gosh, that would have been really helpful. It would have taken me about 12 seconds. But I couldn't write the right Google query yeah. to find the right answer. Yeah, you were, you were basically asking the wrong question, trying to mm-hmm. solve the encoding problem instead of the rendering problem. Yes. <laughs> because I didn't imagine that somebody had just made an easy solution to the rendering problem. Yeah. I, I always assume that somebody smarter than me has already figured out the thing. Mm-hmm. And oh, this so, is... so did I. I spent a bunch of time going through blog posts and things where people were dealing with similar sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was all encoding side, not yeah. rendering side. Was well, because you had already you had already diagnosed the issue and thought that mm-hmm. you knew what the issue was. And uh, this is maybe this is a a topic for another episode sometime. But I think we should do a segment sometime on asking stupid questions because there are things like Stack Overflow where asking a stupid question is incredibly discouraging discouraged but it can be really helpful when you don't know the right question (laughs) and like there are some facebook groups that i follow on the vr stuff that i'm into and say what you want about facebook but it is perfectly acceptable to ask a stupid question (laughs) you may get a couple of stupid answers but you almost always get some real answers mixed in with that as well and i think as developers we we have this kind of like self-imposed culture of I have to know what I'm talking about. I have to at least seem to know what I'm talking about. And I'm having trouble with something else is the issue, not my understanding. And I think it's good to, especially when we're working on something new, like I have no idea how to ask this. Mm -hmm. There should be a tag for that on Stack Overflow or something like (laughs) warning. Don't come here if it's going to make you mad. Or maybe just a separate section of Stack Overflow where it's just, Mm -hmm. we're just going to assume that my question is dumb. Yeah, I've granted that. And so only the people who care about dumb questions can go there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So found the pre-tag. Uh, was starting to put in some decent uh, progress indicators. Um, right now they're just uh, indeterminate spinners. But I can at least see in the interface when a, prog- when a process is still running. Because some of mm-hmm. them can take a couple seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, which again lots of fun HTML rendering how to get things spacing properly and appearing in the right locations um, that'll that'll be a recurring theme in my discussions over the next few months um, I've got a crazy problem and I, I can't remember if I mentioned this last week with uh, scroll wheels no I saw this in the notes I've got um, a number of scrollable regions and different scrollable regions are respond differently. <laughs> like the scroll wheel on, on this uh, Logitech mouse that I'm using 
scrolls most of the sections perfectly fine, but there's one particular column, something about the way I've done it, it doesn't like scrolling in there. It'll kind of bounce around a little bit, but it doesn't move. But doing a two finger scroll with my trackpad scrolls that relatively fine. It's not smooth. It's like there's a resistance to the scrolling. Whereas the trackball on my Kensington Turbo Mouse, all three of these devices are connected to the same computer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the scroll wheel on the Kensington Turbo Mouse scrolls all of that perfectly fine and smoothly with no difficulties. Nice. That's okay. <laughs> that was... Before you added the third one, I was going to say it sounded more like a rendering issue. Like it, like the that section was having trouble rendering its content quickly enough for the scroll. Mm -mm. But yeah. Uh -huh. no, it's like Did a you... rubber banding thing. Is this only happening in like, I guess, what is the version of the, uh, I don't know if your development environment is running some kind of like, what is, what is it even called? Like when I'm doing Xcode development, I'm running in a simulator. Are you running in a simulated version of the app or has this actually been compiled and executed from itself? Uh, compiled and executed from itself. So at that point, it's running a WebKit web view, WK okay. web view. Um, but I, I get, this is one of those things where I get slightly different behaviors if I'm running the same GUI in Chrome or Safari. Like mm -hmm. Safari works great. WK web view works oddly. And now I'm lost because they should be the same rendering engine. <laughs> yeah. But but that one's, it's still on the list. It's a little goofy. And I want to do some interface changes to the section that's having trouble scrolling anyway. So if it is an HTML or rendering problem, I'm not going to bother messing with it until I've actually got it closer to done. Yeah. I would also say I, I have had issues with the Logitech stuff with scrolling on Mac OS. They've got their own independent scroll settings in their little mm -hmm. applet that runs in system preferences and that allows you to customize some stuff, but it has been kind of jittery compared to every other mouse that I've used on Mac OS or the same mouse and scroll wheels on Windows. So maybe take that off your desk for a day. <laughs> Which would be great, but I it, I don't have a problem scrolling with this mouse in any other application. Mm -hmm. This is literally the first time I've had a scroll problem with this mouse. So, and again, it is acting oddly with the trackpad. Not as badly, but still oddly. Yeah. Anyway, so I <clears throat> that one's been a consistent headache for a while now, and at some point I'll figure it out. Or I will speak with someone who knows way more HTML stuff than I do, and maybe they'll have a better answer. Mm -hmm. um, the next technical problem that I want to delve into is kind of an interface flow thing. Um, so when you're using this diff tool, there are, at least in the beginning, there are three buttons that you care about. The first loads the old or the original version of your XML. The second loads the modified version of your XML. And then the third does the comparison. Okay. Um, this is primarily because since you're manually pointing to these files at this stage, it's relatively easy to mess up a pointer somewhere and end up with 
both of both the old file and the modified file being the same file. Mm -hmm. And so I've got some little indicators that'll pop up and go, yeah, I'm pretty sure you didn't want to do this. Um, it'll also catch. No, no, that's the wrong indicator. You should say <laughs> there's no difference. Well, that's basically what it does is it goes, both Perfect. of these files are pointing to the same physical location. Perfect match. Congratulations. Um, the, the next test that it runs is to confirm that those two files are different. Hmm. So you're not pointing it to two copies, two exact copies of the same file. Um, which is also another thing that you can do when you're running around and playing with files. Um, so anyway, it does a lot of crunching on each of those files. Basically, as soon as you tell it where one of the files is, it starts breaking it up into little chunks and getting it ready for comparison. And depending upon the size of the DDR, that can take a couple seconds. Mm -hmm. Then it does the second one. If you tell it to start doing the comparison before it's finished those two loads, you do not get useful results. Okay. Because the place where I'm putting all the data isn't fully populated yet. And so you get lots of things. Like generally, if you're going from original file to modified file and then hit the comparison too quickly, um, it will show you that a whole bunch of stuff in the first file got deleted in the second file because it's not there anymore because it hasn't gotten around to loading it yet. Mm -hmm. Very dangerous. So currently there's no lock on that button. Yeah. Um, and I, before I had the status indicators, I was actually watching the log to see that it had finished processing everything. It's like, okay, now I can press the button. Now I have status indicators that tell me when it's done with each of those things. And that's great, but I haven't yet disabled the button. So okay. option one, currently there's no lock. So the user can break the process and I have to notice and give them an error. Don't like that one. Yeah. Second option is disable the start the comparison button until the two loads have finished, mm -hmm. which will keep them from breaking things and getting bad data uh, it also saves me for having to write a bunch of tests to see which, what the current state of that process is. I can just have a flag. This one's loaded. This one's loaded. Light up this button. That's pretty straightforward. But what I really want to do is allow them to press the button even if the system isn't ready. And have that kind of queue up the request to okay. start the comparison. So that when both files have been properly parsed, it will go, oh, hey, and you wanted me to start the comparison. Let me run with that. Yeah, it's just a basically a start when done type feature. Yeah. So you've got, yeah. you load a file, you set a Boolean value that it's incomplete. And then when it when that process completes, you set it to complete. You do the same thing with the second one. And then... Mm -hmm the third button can just check those other conditions and say, hey, if these are both true, then start this process else, run some kind of loop and check back in so many milliseconds. So I don't want to do the loop um, because that just strikes me as bad processor usage, even if it's with a nice timing thing. Mm. Um, what I think I can do is at the end of each of the processor things, it can check to see if 
A, both things have been done, and B, that the request has been filled. And if it has, or the request has been filed, and if it has, then it can just itself call what the button currently calls. Okay. So yeah, you've got the depend a button with two dependencies, and each of the dependencies can invoke the thing that the button should do as a callback. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, I've never written that kind of code before. Um, only slightly complicated by the fact that the both of those functions run asynchronously. Mm-hmm. Um, so each of those functions gets to its official end a tenth of a second after they start, no matter how big the DDR is. <laughs> and so I've got to actually look at the processing code and set it up so that it will it will do that check only once the appropriate data changes have been made. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a little more exciting, but um, it's one of the things that I've noticed myself doing very much is wanting to go click, pick, click, pick, start. And uh, graying out that button until it's ready is just going to be obnoxious. Yeah, it's it's the, better than having no lock, but it's just not a good answer. It's the government website <laughs> answer. <laughs> Giant red text and grayed out buttons and words like "you must" at the beginning yeah. of every sentence. Yeah, and simultaneously, just uh, coding to where I think the support requests are going to be. Yeah, like there are certain things that I just know are going to cause users trouble. And if I can pull out that friction and just make the system act as expected, you know, I mean, one answer is making it act rigid and consistent. That's, that's a, that's a kind of answer, but making it act smarter is kind of fun if I can get there. And I think I can, I don't think there's anything super technically complicated there. It's just, a little bit goofy for me because I literally have never written code that acts that way before. So yeah. that'll be a little fun. Hopefully I'll have an update on that next week. Yeah. So uh, how's your stuff going, Joe? Oh, pretty good. I spent uh, a good part of the week last week working on the, I guess the FileMaker version of the prototype for the app I'm working on and made it, Pretty good progress. Like the core data entry screens and list views are all done. And it's pretty basic. It's just running in FileMaker Go on my phone and I can add data and delete data and you know do basic things with it. Um, there are some controls on, some basically FileMaker's implementation of iOS controls, which are just after spending a little bit of time in iOS, they're just laughably badly done. <laughs> like the way that FileMaker implements the date picker is almost offensive. Um, so that stuff is annoying. But and also the the animations in FileMaker Go are just awful, just truly horrendously bad. And uh, it's just sorry to put it in such stark terms, but I. If I tried to make bad animations on purpose, I don't think I could have made these. I could. 
I'm yeah. terrible at animation. Oh yeah, my animations would look way worse. They've gotten a little bit better in uh, Final Maker Go 18 than they were in 16 and 17, but they're still at least five times too slow mm. compared to everything else on my phone. So yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's just bad. Um, but, but yeah, the prototype is done. I've actually been thinking quite a bit about other stuff I can do. So I mentioned last week that the app is kind of divided into a data side and a visual side, and that I wasn't sure if the visual side would be done for version one. And the more I think about it, the less sure I am about the visual side. Like I have some vague ideas of how I want to visualize that, but I have no idea how to technically achieve any of that which is why it's not really in the project planning at this phase. So it, instead of that, I've been trying to think of what can I do with this data in ways that I do know how to do stuff with. And mm-hmm. I've kind of taken a little bit of inspiration from the iOS 13 version of Reminders. So that got a rewrite for the first time in 700 years. Um, I think they found... they. They found the original Reminders app in an archaeological dig in the 1940s, <laughs> and we've been using it since then. Joe, um, that's that's an exaggeration. It couldn't possibly be more than 650 years. Yeah, you're probably right, given the typography, yeah. But it's it's finally gotten a rewrite, and they've done some neat stuff with it. I would bring it up for example, but I'm scared to load it and have it corrupt all my data again, <laughs> which is another story. Um don't use the betas unless you really are really sure about it. Um, but they have, they've kept reminders as a very list focused thing. So the initial screen or like the, the base uh, view controller in the reminders app is kind of, is a table view that shows you all your lists, but they also have kind of a collection view at top to show you some favorite type of lists. So some smart lists as they're calling it. And I thought about doing something similar to that where I basically have two entities of data. There's a parent and a child table. And the way that you currently interact with the app is you start on the list of the parent records. You can swipe on a row to edit that record, which you you really hardly ever do. Once you create that that top level record, you basically just give it a name and some attributes and leave it alone. It's the data that it contains that this app is about. And so then you can tap on that row and go to another list view or a table view controller of all the child records. And then you can tap on one of those rows to go and view the details of that and do edits and change data. And at that point, um, half of that screen will kind of be doing data entry. So maybe a quick edit button in the corner to go to a form view. But the other part will be metrics about that piece of data or related pieces of data that fall into like a a similar period and so that's the current structure of the app that's what i have in ui kit that's what i have in filemaker and it's really basic and i think it's it's really basic in a very familiar way that everyone will know how to use like Mm -hmm. i'm following the hig pretty well and stuff like that um but i was i was thinking about going back up to that top level and doing something more like reminders did at the top level of 
throughout the app, allowing users to favorite data or mark it as flagged, that type of interaction, um, and then have it surface in a favorites area, as well as this data is very date driven. So allowing the, the application on load or on that layout refresh to do some data crunching and, and surface other things that may be interesting about a particular period based on the current date. Mm -hmm. um, so I may be, I mean, I still have some ideas for the visual side, but I'm kind of kicking them down the curb for now and really gonna focus on what can I do with traditional UI kit slash Swift UI stuff without getting into basically writing an entire custom charting engine <laughs> to display data um, or finding something online that I can use. <laughs> I've looked I've looked around for things that I want and I haven't found anything even close to what's in my head. And I haven't even been able to prototype what's in my head with any tools that I know of. So that it's probably a good indication that it maybe it's not a good idea. Um, well, or that it's going to be really visually distinctive and make a great marketing point. Yeah, maybe. If I can ever get it out of my head. <laughs> but yeah, I could actually probably prototype it in VR quicker than I could anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> if that tells you the level of complexity. <laughs> like I can go into Oculus Medium or Tilt Brush and get it done in half an hour. <laughs> the question is, could you could you write code that would draw it using Unity? Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. So anyway, that that part of the project project is on hold. So. Like I mentioned, I got most of the prototype done for data entry. So this week I want to spend a little bit of time thinking through that kind of dashboard style interface and what things are helpful to service to the user and how the favoriting system would work. Um, and then also how to just kind of like stylize these things in a way that looks very distinctive. Um, it's a it's a really interesting design problem to be able to work with lots of like vibrant colors and typography, but also keep accessibility in mind. Like color coding is a big part of the app, but color coding can't be the only way to distinguish data in the app because there are colorblind people. And that wouldn't be very kind to say, all of your data looks exactly the same because I didn't give you a way to distinguish this data. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, trying to trying to work around, well, not work around, work with those constraints. And Apple's given us more and more tools to to do that every day. Like every version of Xcode has more and more accessibility stuff built in. Um. So yeah, that's kind of where the project is. On a side note, I did a great deal of, I do a great deal of my work away from a computer, taking walks, just doing thinking sometimes playing a video game and a lot of the work that went into my prototype this week was done while I was fishing in virtual reality. So I don't even particularly care for fishing, but I saw this, this new app that hit the market recently called 
uh, Real Fishing VR. I have it on Oculus Go, but I think it's available on Oculus Quest as well. And at first I just turned my nose up and I'm like, oh, who cares about fishing? But I, I kept seeing people mention it. And finally, I'd, I think it was on sale or something for a day. And I got it and it may be one of the greatest video games ever made. <laughs> it's right up there with desert golfing and stuff like that of like, I can just do this and basically until the headset overheats and I have to take it off. Um, yeah, it's great. It's just a really chill, relaxing game. You've got your own lodge and a giant aquarium to bring fish back to if you want. And it's got some, you know, mechanics built in, like an, an experience system and a money system where you can buy more advanced fishing gear. And it's got a built-in MP3 player and stuff like that. But really, it's just a bunch of scenes and they're all, they're not 3D rendered scenes. They're all scenes captured with 360 cameras. And then the game is kind of built on top of the 360 images. Okay. So it's it's commingled with like the, um, the fish are just 3D objects floating around under the water, but the water is really just a plane that, so like they're using some kind of projection to make the water captured in the video blend in with the particle effects and stuff that you're seeing in the game. Uh, it's really well done. And they're actually adding multiplayer fishing toward the end of the summer. So <laughs> peer pressure is going to be accelerating for all of my friends to get some VR headsets. This may be like, even if you're not that into VR, you should probably consider getting an Oculus Go just to play this if you need a quiet place to think. It's that good. Is this your first uh, video game fishing simulator? I've played fishing in other games. Um, like other video games have had fishing mechanics in them, but never just a fishing game in and of itself. Okay. The first one I ever played with was back on the Sega Dreamcast. And I don't... I don't think it was the first one, but it was a pretty graphically detailed fishing simulator, and I lost hours and hours and hours and hours mm. just casting. Because it pulls all the the really obnoxious parts of fishing out yeah, and leaves just the good stuff. My, uh, my father went on a fishing trip to Canada just about a month and a half ago. And it was like the first entire day he's sitting in a boat in 40 degree weather all day and gets one nibble, but no actual bites. There are other people in the boat catching some fish, but not lots of them. Mm -hmm. And it was like, wow, this sounds really exciting. <laughs> it, it's uh, it's kind of like the, the old saying, you don't like having money you like spending money yeah i don't like fishing i like catching fish yeah and the video games let me do that well there have been several times where i've i've cast the line where there aren't any fish just so i can sit there for a couple minutes and think <laughs> <laughs> so yeah real fishing or real vr fishing it's available on Oculus. It's probably available on Steam as well. I'm not sure. Um, but I've been playing it on Oculus Go. So I wanted to touch on web development 
This is something we mentioned briefly last week that I sometimes do web development, but not really. And I was thinking about that and why that is, and I realized it didn't really have a good reason for why I don't do more of it. Particularly because I had a meeting with my customer last week who I was finishing this website for, and they're really pleased with the result and emphatically told me that I should be doing this more often. Mainly, I just have a good design sense and a good sense of how to structure data in a way that's accessible to people and makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so they encouraged me to start doing more websites if people need it. And I was thinking about the type of projects that I do, which are almost always huge database development projects that take six months or a year. And I was thinking, I don't really want to do that, but these WordPress sites can take a month or two or sometimes less. Um, so I thought about trying to get into this a little bit more, not necessarily as a long-term objective, but as a way to make some extra money, help some people who need some websites and, uh, you know, kind of get myself through the summer. So I started reaching out to some existing customers and friends and family, about anybody who needs a website, but I wanted to make a, an appeal to the listeners. If anybody needs a new website and wants to talk about it, then, uh, please give me a, send me a message through the contact form on the project update website and we'll get together and talk about what you need. And very uh, cool. Little self-promotion there. <laughs> um, so yeah, my, my last topic is about side projects and okay. we've talked about side projects a lot. This kind of, this, this podcast is a side project. FF Perception started as a side project. Um, Really, the, the app I'm building has to be thought of as a side project right now because it's not really making me any money. Um, but I'm really thinking of there are about half a dozen other projects that I want to do. Some of them work-related, some of them just interesting. And one of the most useful things that I've done to combat my RSI issues is to limit the amount of work that I do in a day to six hours. That is, that seems to be, if I push past that, I end up having a lot of pain. And if I stay around six hours a day, then I'm able to get a decent amount of work done um, without hurting myself too badly. And it's also kind of lent itself to taking on work that I know will have a payoff. Like I, I tend not to procrastinate during the day there's only so many days I can, so many hours I can sit in front of this computer. So I, you know, I kind of know how much time I have and how much work I have to get done. So I think the, this constraint has actually made me much more productive than in previous years. I've been doing this for about seven months now. Um, but it has also made me, it's kind of forced me to give up several side projects that I want to do. One of which is a VR project that I would really like to do right now, but it has no financial viability whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> it would just be a way for me to throw money into a bucket and hand it off to someone, which is not the best project to take on right now. Um, but I, I need to find a way over the next couple of months as I kind of stabilize my business financially, I do need to find a way to get back to side projects at some point because that's where all of the stuff that I learn comes from. Like just working on the same project all the time, I will become pretty static pretty quickly. And so I, 
I don't know how much of a topic this is for today, but I at least wanted to get it out there of like, maybe it's kind of a recurring theme of the show of like, how do we balance what's best for these, the software that we build and support with the other stuff that we want to work on as well as like continuing to advance intellectually. Hmm. So there's a uh, Twitter feed that's at code wisdom. Okay. And I just retweeted a quote that they had from a Melinda Varian. And the quote is the best programs are the ones written when the programmer is supposed to be working on something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, as far as programming stuff goes, I've got relatively good focus in the sense that I don't often do many development projects simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, I try and load my brain full of one big project and run with that as hard as I can. The big exception to that is when it doesn't feel like I have the option. Like if in my head, it is impossible to think about anything other than the other thing, Mm -hmm. no matter how hard I try and double down, no matter how hard I try to keep myself focused, if I just can't, very often a couple of days poking with a side project will run me into a stumbling block. And rather than deal with that stumbling block, I will go back to the thing that I'm supposed to be working on. <laughs> cause now that project seems appealing. Cause I understand that project space. I've got months into that one. Yeah. Um, it was kind of like, um, I, when I'm shopping for something, I have a tendency to do a ton of research. Mm-hmm. And so I'll get this idea in my head that I like need a new game system. So I'll do a bunch of research and figure out what games I would want to get and whatever like that. And I'll do this. And I'm like, no, don't need a new game system. About the eighth time that I start doing that research all over again, the right answer is to buy the game system. Yeah. So that I can stop thinking about buying the game system. It actually ends up becoming cost effective to just spend the money. Yeah, that's why I'm sitting in front of an iMac right now. Yeah. It's like I, I've only done the, the research on an iMac Pro like three times. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not there. It's edging up, but it's it's not there yet. So Yeah, where I I had looked into this particular configuration about a dozen times between now yeah. and March. Like, yep. <laughs> a dozen times times in three months. Joe, you just, you need to buy some of your time back and this is how you do it. <laughs> Pretty much. So yeah, the side project thing, I, I guess I should clarify, I don't, when I say side project, I don't mean work all day on one project, work in the evening on another mm-hmm. project. I've never really been that type of person. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people like that and I admire their ability to do that. Um, but I am very much like an immersion developer where I get, completely obsessed with one project and develop the living crap out of it until it's done. And that can be really good. And, and I do have a way to balance that out with other stuff. Like I have retainer um, customers that I take care of on a regular basis. And that gives me just enough work that when I get stuck on something, I have something else to work on, but I'm never 
the way that I'm set up now, I never really feel like I'm being pulled in too many different directions. So when I do a side project, it's usually I finish up a large development project for a customer and then I take a week or a month or two years to <laughs> work on something. <laughs> it's a, an allusion to the VR, my, my history with VR. Um, but yeah, so like I have a project. So maybe that'll be my reward this fall when I ship this app is I can spend a week or so prototyping my VR idea. Um, but I keep, it's one of those things that I keep thinking about and keep wanting to do. And I keep thinking of ways I could design it and stuff like that. I'm like, but I keep, I have a note where I've documented all this. And at the top of the note, it says, yeah, but does anybody care? Which is a bit harsh, but yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know that anybody else has to care, Joe. You care. And as far as as a project selection in and of itself, I think that's enough. That doesn't mean that you should work on it instead of paying work. Yeah. Um, but as a side project, learning project, thing to keep your soul alive... Sounds well, great. Well, it's also annoying because it's it's a project that I know wouldn't be very hard to do. I could do it in a couple of weeks. And I've said that to myself so many times and it's never been true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was literally thinking, Joe, you've been pretty bad at estimating the duration of a project <laughs> that should only take a couple of weeks. Yeah. It hasn't... You, you don't have a, a really good uh, track record on that. Well, I have a great track record on that in FileMaker and web development. I have a terrible track record that particularly at VR or game development. Yeah. Like I think, oh, you know, this thing, this is a small problem space that, you know, it's low poly artwork. I can figure that out. You know, seven weeks later after doing thousands of hours of 3D modeling, like, well, yeah. I got one of the tables done. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, game development or VR app development is one of those things that's relatively easy to do exceptionally poorly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and very hard to do well. Yeah, game development in particular, like I am more than capable of doing game development from a technical standpoint game design is a totally different craft and <laughs> I am not very well equipped currently to handle those types of challenges, at least on any time frame that I'm comfortable working in. But yeah. So that's, that's kind of our, our topic list for today. Um, do we want to make a shameless appeal for people to promote the podcast? Sure. We should absolutely do that. I think that was it. So oh. listeners, if you could help us uh, spread the podcast around, that'd be great. You could uh, you know, share it on social media or tell your friends or leave us a review on, on your podcast player. Maybe favorite us in Overcast. I, I will say a brief side note. Um, I re-listened to the show last week in a couple of different players. And I've always known that Overcast sounded particularly good, but... Listening to it at that level of detail, we sound way better in Overcast than anywhere else just because of the voice boost feature. So if you're looking for a new podcast player, go check out Overcast. It makes us sound good. <laughs>